If you're willing and able to remain standing as we read God's Word together this morning. We'll be in John chapter 8 if you have a Bible and want to turn there, uh, but I will read it for us. John chapter 8, John writes, Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is God's word. is without error in any part. It's given for our good and for his glory. Let us pray. Heavenly Fathers, we open your word now. We ask that your spirit would be at work, illuminating it to us, opening our hearts and our minds that it may cut us deeply. And may remind us of the healing that is found in the blood of Christ. Pray all of this in his name. Amen. You can have a seat if you would like. We started a new uh, series um, last week. Uh, the I am statements, the seven I am statements of uh, the gospel of John. Where Harry kicked us off last week with I am the bread of life. The bread who has come down from heaven to give life to the world This morning, we're looking at John chapter 8, verse 12, where Jesus proclaims that he is the light of the world. I am the light of the world, he proclaims. And in in this context surrounding this is actually uh, really important for us to see just how big of a claim it is. Jesus makes this claim during the Feast of Tabernacle. And and I know we we don't do that feast any longer. We don't probably, many of us don't know what it's about. Um, But it's one of the big, three big feasts of the people of God uh, of, of the Old Testament. And, and, and um, it's one of the big ones that they would make a pilgrimage into Jerusalem for. And so Jerusalem, historians say, during the Feast of Tabernacle would sometimes quadruple in size. It was a packed house. It was full to the brim. There was no room at the inn again. And it's a festival, a feast, that is all about them remi- uh, remembering their identity as the people of God. As the people that God led through the wilderness during the Exodus. that The people of God that he brought to the edge of the promised land. And so throughout the the festival there are different things that they do. And and one of them, and the more significant ones, is they had these huge torches. Um, I like fireworks and this is bigger than any of the ones I've ever set off. It's these huge torches. They would be in the sanctuary in the court of women in the midst of the temple. These torches held 65 liters of oil. Historians say that there wasn't a courtyard in Jerusalem that wasn't lit by their light. They were remembering God's presence in the pillar of smoke and fire that led them through the wilderness. And they would dance and sing praise and party throughout the night under these torches and its light. It's in that context that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. They've lit these torches. They've been partying all night. They've been singing God's praise, filling the air with their laughter and their joy. And as they smolder the next morning, Jesus, the Nazarene carpenter, stands up and says, I am the light of the world. Who does that? Like everybody's now looking at him going, dude, what? That's absurd. You, you, you literally just said that, that, that the presence of God we've been celebrating and that we're, we're longing for in this feast, that you're him. And that's what Jesus is claiming. He's telling them, you don't need this feast any longer to remember and celebrate that God's presence was once with his people. 
You don't need this feast any longer to long for and point towards a time when the presence of God will be among you again. For I am the light of the world. I mean, they had to be sitting there and going, what in the world are you doing? I am the light of the world. This claim that Jesus makes, if, if he is the light of the world, it matters what we think of him. It matters how we think about him, even this morning. He's no longer a figurine as part of our nativity set that we're dusting off for Christmas. Or maybe like all the stores I've been in, you've already put up your Christmas decorations. But he's not that. He's not the last resort you go to to, to answer the longings of your heart, to end your suffering. He isn't just that person that we gather together on Sundays to sing praise to and pray to. He's the light of the world. So what does it mean? What does it mean when he says he's the light of the world? Well, he's claiming three things. He's helping us understand three things this morning. He's helping us understand our darkness. So he says, I am the light of the world, and he who follows me no longer walks in darkness. So before we followed him, we were in darkness. So claiming that he is the light, he helps us understand our darkness. He also helps us understand his light. And third, he gives us what it means to follow him. Jesus opens and says, I am the light of the world. This word world here is one that he has used before. John has written it. It's the word cosmos. Here it's a different uh, form of it, but it's still cosmos. It's this word that throughout the gospel of John, John uses it to describe a world that we all know, a world that is shrouded in evil and darkness, a world that is in great need of saving. As he says in John 3.16, a world that is in great need of a light to come into it as he opens his gospel and as he says here, a world, as one commentator put it, that is full of pride and covetousness. A world, John describes, and a world Jesus speaks into this morning. A world that we know. See, mankind, darkness is, is marked by our denial of a creator. It's marked by our denial of God. And, and, we, and we decide to take on the role of this creator because we believe we are independent creatures a mistake we make. It is actually tears us from reality. It's also a world of covetousness. We know that to covet means what you have, I want. What you have, I want. Why do we fight? Why do we bicker? Why do we argue? James in his letter tells us that the reason we have fights and quarrels is because we have evil within us. We have darkness within us. It's because of that pride that's within us. And that's the reason that we have not only wars across the ocean, but wars in our families. Wars in our our friendships, in our places of work. Wars even within ourselves. It's the pride within us that says we're independent and the covetousness that says we have to win and be right all the time. And Jesus comes in and he says, I am the light of that world. Come to undo the darkness. Come to shine light. And this idea of of light and dark is one that that we're really familiar with. I mean, Star Wars did a good job of helping us understand that the dark side is the bad side, right? We know that that light is good and dark is bad. That's that's basic 
for us. We know it because we're still afraid of the dark. My daughter is. Uh, we, we have a couple of nightlights in her room. Um, and we have to leave the hall light on uh, and her door open until she's asleep. Or she will inform us that we cut the hall light off. And she cuts it on if she has to get up and go to the, the, the bathroom in the even, uh, at night. And cuts all the other lights on too. Because she's afraid of the dark. She knows there's something about it that there is the unknown lurking in it. This is a a theme that that wasn't lost on Israel. They know darkness, right? It's why they write things like, as the watchmen wait for morning. Because the dark is not a good time. They, They had very little artificial light. They had no electricity. There were no cities that didn't sleep at that time. The dark was a place full of evil, predators that wanted to eat you, people that wanted to harm you. And Jesus says, I am the light. I am the light. And he applies this idea of light and dark that is so real and visceral to them, and he applies it to their spiritual blindness. See, John chapters 8 and 9 are all about the spiritual blindness of the religious leaders of the day. They're all about how Jesus continues to come before them and proclaim who he is, and they continue to miss it again and again and again. John 9, he even goes so far to give them a living, breathing illustration of their own state. The blind man in John 9, he heals him with spit and mud. And as he washes out his eyes and sees again, Jesus is telling them, you're like him. You are blind and you are in need of a cure that is outside of yourself. A living, breathing illustration. For we're dark. We are people in the dark. This spiritual blindness that Jesus highlights manifests itself in two ways. How we think about ourselves and how we understand the world. How we think about ourselves, we we don't really understand ourselves. I know that can be offensive to hear someone tell you you don't really understand yourself. But we don't. And and, and I know this, and uh, J.C. Riles put it this way. We think that we are good and wise and righteous and smart. But in the light of truth... We are ignorant. We are ignorant. That's what the light of the world is coming. He says, you don't know your true state. You don't know the darkness that resides in you until the light shines upon it. Notice I look at pictures of myself from high school as friends post things on Facebook or, or wherever. And, and I think back to my 17-year-old self and how, how smart I thought I was, um, how really cool I thought I was, and how ridiculously good-looking I thought I was. I think my, my parents tried to do a really good job then of, of, of humbling me and, and letting me know I'm not as smart as I thought I was or as cool or as, as good looking, but it, it, didn't, it didn't catch on. I was smarter at 17 than I am at 35. And, you know, I, I, I look at a picture, and, and when I was younger, I think oh, that was just a bad picture of me. And what I've realized now is that, that that's just who I am. I'm not nearly as good looking or smart or as cool as I thought I was. But as a 17-year-old, I was blind to that fact. And that's true of our physical selves. It's true of our spiritual selves. We think we're a lot better off than we are. And Jesus, as, as the light of the world, is coming and, and, and proclaiming that. He is revealing to us the truth of ourselves. What our hearts are really full of. What's really inside of us. It's like um, there's these shows on the Food Network and uh, there's restaurants that are failing. And some celebrity chef comes in and is going to help them 
save their business, save their restaurant. And they usually come in, they sit at the table, and they order like one of everything, and they taste a little bit of it, and it's all terrible. None of it ever tastes good. And, and the place is filthy, dirty, and, and the ambiance is terrible, and, it, and the service is, is spotty. And, and so then they spend the rest of the show trying to help the restaurant owners understand all of this. And it's inevitable the owners get angry. They get upset. They begin to argue and, and fight with this expert. And it's inevitable. It gets to the point where the expert finally says, hold up. How is your business doing? Why am I here again? And it's in that moment of shock that the owners are humbled and reminded, oh, yeah, we're about to go bankrupt. We're about to go belly up. We're about to go and fail. Jesus, as the light of the world, is just like that expert. His light has come and shined and is revealing to us all of the places that we fail. All of the darkness in us. All of the evil that we don't even know exists. He's looking at us and saying, how's your business doing? How's your heart? And scripture tells us that he came unto his own and his own did not receive him. And he's looking and saying, how's it working out for you? Have you found that fulfillment yet? Have you found that salvation? Have you latched on to that joy that doesn't fade? How's your business doing? He's saying, Marty, you're not as cool or smart or good looking as you thought you were. Marty, you actually have a, a much deeper darkness than you even know or understand. And he's telling us that if we don't see the light and we stay in that darkness, we will be in it forever. It also manifests itself in how we view the world, the fact that we don't understand life. There's the cliche, the, the meaning of life, right? I mean, and it's kind of cliche now. Every Everybody uses it or talks about finding the meaning of life. And, and any culture worth its salt throughout history has tried to find it. Has asked the questions of, of why are we here? What are we supposed to be doing? What's the purpose of all of this? And we're in post-modernity now or post-post-modernity, if you, you know, depending on who you talk to, post-something. Where supposedly we don't care about this question any longer. Here's the thing, though. Is, is you can't stop caring about this question. You can't fill your life with enough hobbies or entertainment to run from these questions. Because when you're sitting next to a hospital bed of a dying relative or a dying friend or you're at the funeral of someone who has recently passed that you were close to, these questions come roaring at you. Why are we here? And you want answers to them. Dante, in the opening of his Divine Comedy, said it this way, In the midst of the journey of our life, I find myself in a dark wood. For the direct road has been lost. Hear what he's saying? You ever feel like that? You ever feel like you're sitting around and staring at life and wondering, what is going on? I'm anxious and fearful and worried. I'm lost. I realize as I get older that I understand it less and less. Yesterday, as, as the news started coming in of this shooting in Pittsburgh at the synagogue, these kind of things came roaring back to me, screaming at me. Why? Why? 
Well, the light has revealed a great darkness. And it's bad news that we, we are in darkness and it's being revealed. But the real bad news is that we head off to false lights to try, make, to try and make sense of it. We head off to false lights. We head off to things that we think and hope are going to make sense of the world. Jesus preached against two of these things more often than not. One of them is the false light of materialism. The, the idea that, that people like, like us, like you and me, are searching and trying to find meaning in this world of the things of this world and the things around us. That, that we think we're going to find salvation in the created things around us. That we'll find heaven here on earth. Because we long for it. We want peace and fulfillment and salvation. And we all struggle with this in some shape or form, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're a have or have not or never will have. In some shape or form, we go and look again and again at different lights. We test them all to see if the batteries are there or not. Doesn't matter if it's, if it's the, the false light of beauty or money or prestige or memberships or pride or health or sex, or power, or ease, or the fact that you got to always be right. We go to these things again and again and again to make sense of the world around us. And they don't shed any light on the darkness because they're part of it. Another false light we turn to often is religion. Jesus preached against it. He preached against dead religion, the danger of equating knowing about God with knowing him, with filling our heads with knowledge but not having a relationship. And I know, I know this is something that we, we struggle with, that we're facing, because I know as a pastor it's something I struggle with. If I can just understand more theology, if I can just know more Bible, if I can just fill in the blank, it'll change my heart. It'll, it, it, it'll awaken me if I can fill my head with more truth about God. That's the thing. Donald Coggin, a former archbishop in the Church of England, said that the hardest, most arduous journey that any man will ever take is a journey between his head and his heart. Religion can fill us with truth. It can fill us with self-righteousness. And if that truth isn't changing our heart, what's missing? What's missing is the light of the world. That's bad news. Jesus, as light of the world, helps us understand our darkness, but he also helps us understand his light. What does he say? He says to us, stop. Stop chasing false lights. I am the light. Not a light. Not one of the lights. I am the light. He says, I am the last train out of town. In fact, I'm the only train out of town. He's looking at us. So what does it mean? What does it mean when he says the light? He says, he, he is saying he is the original light. The one and only light. The self-sufficient one that his own lightness is enough to testify to him. Similar to, to the sun, right? The sun doesn't need anyone to wake it up in the morning and turn it on or turn it off. It's been glowing in the sky long before I was born and, and will glow long after I pass away. It is in itself sufficient to provide light for itself. It's not a... It's not a, it's not a a, light, a flashlight that needs double A's or <clears throat> one of those flashlights that when the storm is coming, you can't find those pesky sea-sized batteries. It's not a light that's dependent. It's not dependent on some other power. He is the 
light. So what does that mean? What does it mean for him to be the light? It tells us that the light has come and it has come to do two things. Well, we've already talked about how it reveals to us our understanding of darkness, but it also reveals to us our understanding of his light. It also restores us. Reveals to us his light. Light goes into darkness and darkness does not overcome it. How many times in scripture are we told again and again of light being shown into darkness? And the responses of it. Isaiah 6. Great Isaiah, the man of privilege, the great prolific preacher and teacher who's beloved by his people. What happens in Isaiah 6? He sees the pre-incarnate Christ sitting on the throne. He's surrounded by cherubim and seraphim and he calls them lightning ones, glowing ones. And they don't hold a candle to the one who's seated on the throne. Whose light is so great. What does Isaiah do when he sees the light? He does not break out into his rendition of Ace of Base. I saw the sign. He says, woe is me. Woe is me. I am dead. I am lost. I am one of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. I am desperate. Why? Because the one thing that could shine into the depths of his soul has done it and shown him just how unworthy and unrighteous he is. The light reveals the truth. What about Peter? Oh, Peter the Rock, right? Peter the Rock in the Gospels, he says, Jesus, we're BFFs, man. I was your day one. We're going to be together forever. I'm, never, I'm not going to be like the other guys that you said are going to abandon you. I'm going to stay with you until the end. Peter didn't really know himself too well. Jesus says, oh, oh, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, to test you. And and it's going to reveal, Peter, some things about you. And you're going to deny me three times. Peter's like, no, I'm not. You're crazy. And when that rooster crows and Peter has denied him three times, what does it tell him as that light of first dawn hits him? The Gospels tell us he wept bitterly. He wept bitterly because his true self had been revealed to him. He was not nearly as faithful as he thought he was, not nearly as courageous as he believed himself to be. He was weak and needy and dependent. But Paul, Paul, the the Pharisee of Pharisee, the one who thinks he's doing the right thing, the Jew of Jews, he's headed down the road of Damascus at noontime. The sun is high in the sky and it is a bright sunny day in the desert. Until an even greater light appears and blinds him and opens the scripture to him and reveals to him the truth. Reveals to him the light of life as only known in the person of Christ. Jesus says, Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek because once you come into the light, you are humbled. You are made meek. He goes on and says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Because as we get closer and closer to the light, 
as the light reveals more and more of the darkness in us, we hunger and thirst for the only righteousness there is. The righteousness of Christ. And, and the closer and closer you get to the person, the closer and closer you get to the light, the more and more you're going to see your need for him. See, the, 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 the gospel isn't a self-help program. It's not a self-help program meant to make you more independent. The gospel is the ever-growing truth of how dependent you are on the work of Christ. I'll say that again for you. It is not a self-help program made to make you more independent. It is the ever-growing truth of how dependent you are on the work of Christ. So it's not only that he reveals, the good news is he restores. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. John tells us in John 3.16, he got to love the world, he sent his son. Right, And and, and then in John 3.17, what does he say? He sent his son into the world not to condemn the world, but to save it, to heal it. To fix it. That's really good news for us, right? I mean, if it's the light that reveals, we operate in a world that when people know you and they know, know all of your, 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 your dirt, they know all of your things you try to hide from everybody, what do they do? They use them. They use them. They use them for leverage over you. They use them to elevate themselves over you. We know it because we do it. We know it because we see it. Every time it's election season, right? You become a candidate, everybody in the world is going to know everything about you. It doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on. One side digs, the other side digs deeper until it's just throwing stuff across at each other. We do it too, though. We, we, we use our knowledge of each other's hurts and pains and struggles. Here's the good news about Jesus. He knows the secrets. He knows the deep, dark secrets. He knows the never mentions and never think abouts. But he doesn't use them against us. He, he, he doesn't use them to humiliate us or to shame us or to guilt us. Because he came to free us. He came to free us from that guilt and that shame. He came to free us from the darkness that we may not walk in it any longer. He came to set us free, to heal us and restore us. And it's only a freedom we know, though, when we understand our darkness. It's only a freedom we know, though, when we understand his light and his love for us. And the one who has set us free from the darkness says to us, come and follow me. Come and follow me. And that's our, our final point today is following him. It says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me walks not in darkness, but has the light of life. He will not dwell in darkness. He will not continue to walk in darkness, but will have the light of life itself. That sounds pretty good. To follow Jesus, what does it mean? It means to, it means to believe him. To follow Jesus means to believe him. It, it, not just the truth about him, but to follow means to trust him. And as a person of faith, to step out in that trust. To to have a relationship with him. To be a friend of Jesus. To say to Jesus, I'm going where you're going. And I want you to lead the way. And I know that's weird because we we, we can't hear him. We can't touch him. We don't see him. But, But when the Spirit begins 
to reveal to us the light of the world. The more we see of it, the more it comes into our life, the more we begin to follow it. The word here that's translated as as follow in many of the translations more woodenly means to mimic. So to to, to follow him is to mimic him. It's to, to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. It's to have a relationship with the father. It's to love the poor and the needy and the widow and the orphan. It's to detest evil. It's to encourage the faithful. To follow Jesus, to trust, and to believe. Also means we reject darkness. To follow him means that we're at war with the darkness in our hearts, in our church, in our marriages, in our families. We're at war with the darkness within us. Darkness is the hate and the gossip and the pride, the covetousness, the anger, the jealousy. The list goes on, and we know it all too well. That we're to get to killing it. We're to get to fighting it. Have you ever had the conversation with someone, and it could be either side. I know I've been on both sides of this. It says something like, maybe like this, if I, just, if I just believed more, if God gave me a little bit more faith, I would follow Jesus more. Or maybe, maybe if, I, if I just understood more, I would follow him more. That's not the way it works. It's in our stepping out in faith that our faith grows, that our understanding grows, that our belief grows, that our faith grows. It's in stepping out, it's in risking things for the sake of the kingdom and the gospel that we grow. Not the other way around. We are like OCD trip planners. You may have one of these in your family. You may be one of them. Four weeks before the trip, you've got the itinerary planned out down to the minute. You, you've got the bags packed. And, and within the bags, you've like vacuum sealed everything just to make sure you're going to have enough. You've labeled them per day. Anybody ever been on a trip that actually works? No. Doesn't matter how much planning we do. Something always throws a wrench in it. If, if you are, are, are living and asking these questions and saying things like, well, I've got I to I have it figured out first. I've got to have peace about all of these questions I've got before I can follow Jesus. You will never follow him. Because the light of the world is full of truth, but he is full of mystery. He's full of truth, but he's full of mystery. He is the great I am. And he is your brother, your friend. Follow him. The light of life, what does it mean? It means that we have light, but it is a borrowed light. It's a lot like the moon and the sun. Alistair McGrath said it like such. He said, the moon is a dead, cold, dark, orbital object. It gives no light of its own. And that is true. I, you know, I grew up hunting and fishing and living out in, in the country, and, and I know that on a night of a full moon, the farm in Dimwitty, it's like the noonday sun is shining. It's bright. The, the moon is just shining so bright, just giving off so much light. No, the, the moon's not giving off any light. The, the, the sun reflecting off the moon is giving us light So to have the light of light means that we have borrowed light. Means that in our in our businesses, in our work, in our classes, in our our marriages, in our relationships, in our homes, 
If the hope of the light of the world is shining upon us, if the hope of the light of the world is shining upon us, it means that we become the person that people want to be around. We become people of, of laughter and of joy, and not the fake phony joy, but the lasting deep joy. We become people of truth and integrity. We become people who no longer walk in darkness. Why? Because we have the light? No. No, no, but because the sun is shining upon us. And the sun shining down on us shouts into the darkness and pushes it back and reveals and restores. Do you have the light? Do we have the light? Is it bright in here? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word given for our good and for your glory. We thank you for the light of the world who reveals to us how needy and desperate we are. We thank you that same light beats back against the darkness and rescues us from it. Let us live in that light, the light of the sun shining upon us, knowing his love and his mercy. In Christ's name we pray, amen.